0: I'd like to welcome everyone to our webinar on uh, pursuing litigation options if you're a business Uh, And you're facing some of the uh, delays uh, and and in fact a greatly increased number of denials that we are seeing uh, in the business immigration context these can be temporary visa petitions these can be green card petitions on behalf of employees Uh, just for a matter of context some of the statistical analysis that's recently been done uh, has shown the rate of denials for initial H1Bs to have gone up to 25 percent the Even the denial rate for changes of employer is almost 20%. uh, And denial rate for extensions has also doubled. uh, 8% of uh, extensions with the same employer are getting denied. So there are a lot of denials out there that people are looking for options to challenge. Uh, So today, uh, my partners and I are going to be talking about that. Uh, The first thing that we want to do, of course, is uh, give a quick introduction. Ron Clasco, of course, is our managing partner and the head of the uh, AILA Litigation Task Force. That's a national uh, task force of immigration lawyers who are looking at administrative litigation options in a whole variety of areas. Uh, myself, uh, William Stock, I'm one of the uh, past presidents of ALA, and we've done uh, some litigation on behalf of, of our business clients here. Uh, and Dan Lundy, who heads our litigation practice and has filed many, many, many Um, mandamus cases and APA review cases that we're going to be talking about today so let's get started the first real thing that we need to uh, grapple with if we're going to uh, consider litigation as an option is what are the reasons uh, that that are causing an employer to think about not uh, doing litigation it seems like a really big uh, investment of time and resources uh, and and you know there are some anxieties that come around the uh, uh, the idea of going into federal court. Uh, the first and I think sort of most significant one that we hear is a fear of retaliation. Uh, companies are worried that if they go in uh, to court and they sue the federal government, that somehow the immigration service is gonna then have it out for them uh, in the future. Kind of like uh, you, you told on uh, on your brother to mom or dad and after that they're just gonna be even, even more miserable to you. Um, In fact, our experience has been uh, exactly the opposite. Uh, We have talked with folks who worked with the agency. Uh, uh, They've told us stories, for example, uh, that that, uh, lawyers who work for the agency will sometimes get asked to review a request for evidence or a denial and it'll be flagged uh, as a litigation risk. Uh, When they ask the examiner, why is this a litigation risk? The examiner says, well, because that law firm sued us once, uh, or because that company sued us once. Um, so you do get a reputation that your cases uh, are going to need to be uh, the, your cases are going to be, need to be reviewed much more carefully by the immigration adjudicators if they think uh, they want to do a denial. Um, in fact, uh, what litigation can do is provide evidence for you to use in future cases. Uh, we recently had a situation with one of our clients. We sued on their behalf. Um, on behalf of three denials. Those three denials were actually opened up by the Immigration Service and overturned without us needing to do anything more in the lawsuit. Um, And in the meantime, the Immigration Service had denied another case. So we prepared an amended complaint, and the amended complaint explained that we filed a lawsuit where the three cases that were at issue were denied and reopened and approved. And then in the meantime, they denied this other case. So would you please uh, change our lawsuit to just be about that case? Now, we use this amended complaint as an exhibit in every request for evidence that we get from the Immigration Service. Um, They ask about the same things that they ask about in these other cases. We write back and say, we've answered all these things before. And by the way, we've also sued. And when we sued, you reopened cases and approved them. So, uh, you know, think very carefully before denying uh, this case based on the record that you have in front of you so we do really think that the fear of retaliation is not something that should uh, stop a company from moving forward uh, with a litigation the the second thing that comes up of course is a fear of high costs Uh, certainly when you get into federal litigation and protracted litigation you can be talking about five and six and seven figures uh, if you're contesting uh, an employment law claim a civil rights claim some of these kinds of litigations the type of litigation we're talking about is actually very focused and concentrated. It's very rare that there is discovery beyond the petition that was denied. And nearly always you're going to be looking for. A purely legal basis on which this case is going to be decided so we uh, offer flat fees we can negotiate fees that are based on success in the law for uh, in the lawsuit and smaller employers uh, and individuals are actually able to uh, get the government to pay their legal fees if they're successful under something called the Equal Access to Justice Act so these are all different ways in which the costs of uh, one of these lawsuits can really be uh, much, much more modest than than folks may appreciate. And on behalf of a key employee, uh, that may be an investment that's very worth making. Uh, Another fear that comes up is a fear of adverse publicity. It certainly is public that a lawsuit gets filed. The initial pleadings are often going to uh, be available for people to review, though most of the filings in an immigration-related lawsuit are going to be kept confidential from the public court records. Um, in, uh, the, the, uh, that's the PACER system on which uh, most uh, of the filings in a lawsuit are recorded. Um, however, there are even some extra steps that you can take to help keep uh, the case anonymous. There are ways that you can file the case, um, uh, make a motion to file the case with, a, with the, substituting a name. You can actually uh, be creative in terms of the order of the parties Uh, if you if you bring an employee and the employer uh, and bring the lawsuit together you put the employees name first and that's how it'll show up in all the searches is with that employees name you won't even necessarily see the employer's name uh, in the name of the case so these are some of the tactics that we've used to uh, to avoid uh, too much publicity Uh, and then finally uh, you know, I think the other fear is that litigation can drag on and on and certainly if you have a situation that needs to be resolved in days or weeks uh, Litigation is is perhaps not going to be the best option. However um, Again, unlike a lot of federal litigation which can stretch on for years and years Very often these cases are decided uh, with an initial filing with an initial back and forth of motions that we'll be talking about and um, And can come to a conclusion within uh, six months to nine months depending on the court and the judge uh, that you're in front of so uh, you know hopefully those are some of the reasons uh, that folks have raised to us the principal concerns that stop people from considering litigation seriously Uh, and so now let's begin to dive into some of the different kinds of litigation that we bring the first uh, kind of litigation that we want to talk about Uh, Dan is about the mandamus litigation what do you do when just the case is not getting decided it's been sitting there it's way outside the normal processing times the employer has tried to uh, to to put in service requests to involve the ombudsperson they've even called their their congressman or, or their senator and they've not been able to get any kind of movement on this case what's the remedy there so A mandamus action is
1: an action to compel uh, government action when the government owes you a duty, in this case, to adjudicate a case. Um, I'm gonna go a little bit into the details, but I don't wanna bore you too much, so I'm gonna gonna keep it at a relatively high level. Um, Mandamus uh, is an action to compel uh, adjudication, um, but the, the standards are that the government must owe you a clear duty to do something the plaintiff must have a clear right to have that thing done and no uh, other adequate remedy exists now there's also something called the Administrative Procedures Act The Administrative Procedures Act has a provision that provides that there's a right of action to compel any uh, government action unreasonably delayed now we always include both uh, you know just as a matter of course because Sometimes the APA standard is actually a little bit easier to meet you know if it's not if it's not Necessarily possible to prove that the government has an absolute duty to adjudicate your case They still have a duty to adjudicate it within a reasonable time under the APA. So we always include both Um, Bottom line is mandamus is an action to compel a decision It is not an action to compel an approval Okay, that's a really important distinction is mandamus will get you a decision but the decision is going to be the same as the decision would have been had you not filed, only much, much quicker. Um,
0: so what are some of the times then that you would specifically use mandamus as the remedy? So typically we, you know, the government
1: can fight mandamus. We see it very, very rarely. And you know, 75 plus cases I've filed, I think they've actually fought me on one. Um, what usually happens is we file a complaint. The government has 60 days to answer. Uh, you know, at some point before that time is up, they we converse, and then you know, lo and behold, USCIS adjudicates the case and we settle and dismiss the action. Um, so we typically restrict mandamus to cases that are beyond normal processing time. So one of the things that you have to determine what a reasonable time is. If, if a reasonable delay, if your case is processing for the same amount of time as everybody else, it's not necessarily a great argument that that the delay is unreasonable because that's the average processing time. Now there are exceptions to that rule. I mean, we can all certainly make the argument that USCIS processing times are unreasonable by themselves, and we've done that and you know been successful. Um, but generally. If the case is beyond processing time, it's a good candidate for mandamus. If there's a humanitarian need, if there's an urgent need, some unusual circumstance that makes your case different from everybody else's case, you have a a sick family member, uh, you need need to get your green card because you need to travel, Um, the employer really, really needs this person's services for a job and the job has a time frame, and if you don't do it, it's gonna be significant harm to the company. You know these kind of unusual circumstances are also a good candidate for mandamus and then finally when the delay ends up de- defeating the purpose of the benefit that the statute is, in- in, uh, is intended to provide you know for instance if you know an h1b that you file in April is designed to get to your employer there to work on October 1st well if the delay in processing the change of status is going to take so long that that employee is not going to get there on October 1st or may not even get there until the next year. By the time they approve the petition, you're halfway through (laughs) the first H-1B period. We would file a mandamus because the the delay is – I mean, the statutory scheme is set up so that you're supposed to be at work at a certain day, and if USCIS delay is preventing the statute from working the way it's supposed to, then it would be a good candidate um, for mandamus.
0: So for example, another example that pops into my mind is the 240-day automatic extension of status when you file uh, an extension. So, so an H or an L or an O uh, category uh, person, an employee, you file for them, uh, their original expiration date passes, you only have eight months of work authorization. And unfortunately, we've seen a lot of uh, cases even extend out to that. So this this might be a good place. Absolutely yeah and and other places where the statute I mean is there a is is there any sort of argument based on how long something has to be pending in order for mandamus to be a good form of relief Um,
1: usually if it's not beyond processing times or you know in in another context we recently saw processing times arbitrarily double on the USCIS website know it, we will use the processing time as it was as our as our measuring stick instead of using the new uh, inflated processing time um, but unless the case is beyond processing time or there is some other reason then we would not be inclined to file a mandamus not that you can't do it believe me USCIS processing times are unreasonable all over the place but the problem is if you file and you're not beyond processing times then there's a better chance that they're actually going to fight you uh, and you're going to have to, you know, file motions for summary judgment, go before the court, and prove to the court that they are in fact unreasonable. So unless there, unless the case is beyond processing time or there's a compelling reason, we're often hesitant to file mandamus. Not that you can't do it, but we wouldn't necessarily advocate for it.
0: Yeah, and I, although I think certainly one of the factors that is helpful in the immigration mandamus context. Is that uh, the the agency is supported by uh, user fees, not by uh, uh, congressional appropriations? Uh, You know, if if a Department of Labor adjudication is delayed, you have a small problem in that you know Congress has said you know adjudicate these cases, but Congress has also uh, given a limited number of dollars for that. The whole system of immigration is predicated on the idea that USCIS charges exactly as much money as it needs to do a timely adjudication of cases. So, you know, we do have a certain advantage, I think, going into to court on that basis. Ron, what are some of the issues that, uh, that you've seen in terms of uh, mandamus cases and, and
2: who can sue and, and what remedies you can ask for? Yeah, so one of the first questions we have is whether the company has to be a plaintiff or whether the beneficiary, the, the H-1B beneficiary, for example, can can the uh, beneficiary bring the lawsuit as a plaintiff without the company? Uh, the answer is that we almost always would like to have the company be a plaintiff. The beneficiary can be a second plaintiff; doesn't have to be, but can be. There's some case law that allows uh, a beneficiary to, uh, if, if the beneficiary is in what's called the zone of interests, to be able to be a plaintiff without the company, but. That gets much more speculative. So the answer, Bill, on, on that is almost always we would like to see the company be a plaintiff on a mandamus case. Um, another issue that sometimes comes up, all right, well, the company is willing to be a plaintiff, but uh, does the company have to pay the legal fees? Uh, and uh, uh, m- my opinion on that is uh, that uh, the company does not have to pay the legal fees, even though the company, for example, has to pay legal fees to file an H-1B petition uh, by regulation. Uh, there is no such regulation involving litigation. So, in my opinion, the company does not have to pay the legal fees for litigation. Um, the When you file a mandamus case, Dan made this point very well, which is, You're not filing to get a case approved. You're simply filing to get a case decided. Um, In my experience, and it's rather extensive over a long period of time with mandamus cases, uh, I would say in over, at least over 85% of the mandamus cases uh, that I've filed, uh, the outcome has been that uh, there's an adjudication. Uh, very often before the government has to file an answer. So the way this plays out, you file a complaint, the government has 60 days to file an answer, often they'll request a 30-day extension, and before the end of the 60 or 90 days and before the U.S. attorney actually has to do anything, uh, he or she will usually be able to prevail on his client, the immigration service, to make a decision. The US, The last thing U.S. attorney wants to do is argue to a judge Why, after two or three years, the government couldn't get around to looking at this case? Uh, And they really come down hard on their client to make a decision. So usually that's the outcome. If that doesn't happen, and in the rare case where the government's going to fight the mandamus, uh, then there's going to be a series of motions. The government could file a motion to dismiss for various reasons. That's not usually successful. Uh, And in the end, it's uh, both sides filing motions for summary judgment where both sides are saying there's no factual issues. We all agree that this is the situation. Judge, please make a decision. Uh, One of the reasons that it's very rare that you ever get to that point is that the government does risk having to pay the legal fees uh, under the Equal Access to Justice Act. So it's a rare event that we ever get to a judicial decision uh, on a mandamus case. Timing-wise, as I said, Within 60, within 60 to 90 days, a very, very, very high percentage of these cases result in an adjudication. If the adjudication's an approval, that's great, we're done. If it's an RFE, well, it's an RFE like any other case, and we deal with it and hopefully get an approval. If it's a denial, then we have the ability to go back to court uh, on something we're going to be talking about in a few minutes, which is a declaratory judgment action to get a court to reverse the denial.
0: And I think you know it's also important to remember in the context of a severely delayed case uh, particularly green card and naturalization applications sometimes one of the biggest problems is figuring out why there is a delay uh, is a security clearance issue is it um, you know an, an underlying status issue or something the person may have done in the past filing that mandamus case if the government does elect to file it also gives you information about What the problem is in the case and very often the hardest part of of those severely delayed cases is just not knowing what to do next Uh, knowing where the problem lies can then be the first step in terms of kind of addressing
2: it yeah Uh, I love when the government raises the issue of security clearance as the reason for a delay so my client has been in the United States for the last seven years uh, and the government after three years is saying Your Honor, we shouldn't force a decision in this case because there's pending security clearances. Well, I as a U.S. citizen would like to know after seven years if this person is really a threat to me and the national security of the United States. When I raise that, I find the defense goes away pretty quickly.
0: Right, that's true. And and although there are also other situations that that are causing a problem that, uh, uh, that you that by finding out about it, you can begin to address it. So for example, we had a situation uh, of of an adjustment of status that was severely delayed. We threatened to file uh, a a mandamus lawsuit um, and the person was then suddenly scheduled for an interview. Well, it turned out that the reason they had not been scheduled for an interview was uh, there was an Interpol notice against this person. We would never have found out that derogatory information if we hadn't gotten the interview scheduled. And then, of course, we were able to move forward and address the issues that were raised by the Interpol notice, which turned out to you know, be less than uh, uh, first met the eye. So, uh, again, uh, it is a tool for these severely delayed cases, and and even where you don't uh, win in the sense of uh, getting an approval right away, you can often win by getting the information that you need to do something useful to move the case forward. I
1: think we we should specify, so it's possible to sue USCIS. It's possible to sue the Department of Labor for a delayed labor certification. It's possible to sue even the consulates and the Department of State for not processing visa applications. So mandamus is a tool that can be used to address immigration delays at at all the various agencies.
0: All right. So if we're going to file one of these cases, Ron, what are some of the tips that we
2: want to think about in terms of where and when and how we do it? So the first thing is I always advise that we should make at least some steps to try to get the agency to act. As 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 a practical matter, These steps are usually worthless in reality. The steps might be uh, sending an email or using the 800 number or contacting the ombudsman or going to your congressman. None of these things likely result in any action. However, judges do not like to consider themselves as the first resort. They want to know that you've tried everything else and this is your last resort. So we always want to make sure we've done that and that we can make those allegations in the complaint. The complaint can be fairly bare bones. My own view is it's, it's a good idea, even though it's not necessary for the complaint, to tell a story, um, not just that, you know, this was filed on this date, it's now been two years, the processing times are 18 months, it's too long, please approve it, but how has the plaintiff actually been harmed? How has the company been harmed? How has the individual been harmed? I think it's a, it's a good idea to, to paint that picture. And also, what's
1: what's the benefit to the United States? What's the benefit to the economy? Is this a great company is this a person who's coming to you know an important medical researcher any? Facts that you could throw in there that will make the judge or, or the US attorney think favorably about about The delayed application
2: you know, of the person who's the subject of the delayed application is helpful. Yes yeah. Um we also, again, none of this is necessary, but I also like to throw in statistics to give, to give the judge uh, a picture of what's really going on here. Um, statistically, immigration service processing times have increased 91% in the last few years. Uh, the number of cases completed per hour by USCIS adjudicators has decreased 79%. Um, they are getting, um, in in many cases, fewer case receipts than they got previously, with processing times often doubling, despite the fewer case receipts that they're getting. So there's lots of statistics that, again, not necessary to include in the complaint, but it does paint a picture to the court, if we get to the court, um, that you know th- this is really a problem, and the the government is not going to be able to solve the problem on its own because, you know, it is, uh, uh, one could even argue, uh, intentionally delaying cases compared to what they used to be in the past. Uh, We also get involved, one of the good things about litigation, whether it's mandamus or declaratory judgment, uh, is that we get to choose which court we're going to be filing in. And we usually have at least three or four options where to file. Um, And so any case that we file, uh, that we want to, can be filed in the district court of the District of Columbia. And I am admitted to that district court and regularly file cases there. We also have the option of filing where the plaintiff is, where the company does business, where the individual is. That's an option. We also have the option of filing in the district court where which has jurisdiction over the service center where the case is pending. Um, and in some cases, we may have other options also. Technically, we can file any place the government does business, and the government does business everywhere. Um, so we, we do have lots of options on, on where to file complaints.
0: And obviously, filing uh, where you file can have an impact on which judge you get, uh, and can also have an impact you know, on the, uh, the volume of these cases that they see. If you file in the District of Columbia, you're dealing with judges who regularly deal with cases against administrative agencies and may not necessarily uh, have a a high opinion of the the government lawyers that come in and say, well, this agency is really delayed, and well, judge, this agency is really delayed. On the other hand, you may want to be in your local court uh, because you'll get a more sympathetic uh, hearing perhaps from a judge who
2: knows the company that you're dealing with uh, uh, or the community that's, uh, that the person yeah, has we to. call that the home court advantage and sometimes you know that this is still as we as we transit now to talk about declaratory judgments uh, to uh, on denied cases the venue becomes even more important uh, and and home court is an issue uh, the array of judges you know are we um, Uh, Are we interested in a court that has a predominance of Obama judges or a predominance of Trump judges, for example, could be an issue. Um, Very much an issue. If I'm I'm going to court on an H-1B denial, for example, uh, and I have three or four options, I'm going to do research on the district courts and the circuit court uh, in each of the four options I have and what other H-1B cases they've had and how have they turned out. Uh again, one of the we have many advantages when we're going into federal court. One of us is choosing the court. Exactly. All right, so the Uh, mandamus cases that we just
0: covered really are uh, relief for a delayed case and and now again we're only getting the decision that decision could be favorable but that decision could be unfavorable as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast uh, uh, the the webinar we are seeing many many more uh, cases denied than have been denied in the past uh, and so that has caused us to take a look at what are the litigation options where we have a denial now before we go to court though we should take a serious look at what really are uh, the four options that an employer has following a denial? Uh, the first one that we should always consider uh, is refiling the petition. Sometimes a fast decision is what you need, uh, and sometimes the only way to get a fast decision is to file a second petition. Uh, the second petition could be filed with premium processing. The second petition may go to the same service center, but may wind up with a different adjudicator. And certainly, anecdotally, uh, you'll find that uh, uh, you know, part of the reason for the high denial rate uh, is that people uh, take a denial and simply refile the application. They don't take any further steps um, for that. Now, now, sometimes refiling is not gonna be an option. If it is a case that was accepted in the H-1B lottery, <clears throat> and so it's subject to the H-1B cap, you don't have the option of refiling that case. You have to go back uh, into the lottery a second time. So you're going to want to look at some of the other options we'll discuss. Um, but many times, if it's an extension uh, or if it's a change of employer uh, or if the person uh, you know, is, is in a category where the visa is always available, it may really be that simply refiling uh, using premium processing is your quickest way to get an answer. Uh, the other thing that you can do in refiling a petition is you can often – address some of the concerns that caused the denial of the petition uh, so if someone brings to me a case where uh, for example um, there's an argument about whether a position is a you know computer software uh, developer versus a quality assurance analyst and the categories for the LCA are different in those two H1B jobs well we might say based on the evidence we have we have a we have a better case if we refile this application in that other uh, job classification because that will allow us to make better arguments that it qualifies for an H-1B. So we always consider whether refiling is the best option uh, rather than taking some of these more extensive uh, uh, kinds of efforts. The second thing you can do is file a motion to reopen or a motion to reconsider. Now the difference between doing that and a refiling is that in a motion to reopen or motion to reconsider, you're asking the immigration service to go back to the same petition you already filed, and you're either adding new evidence in a motion to reopen or new legal arguments in a motion to reconsider. This is sometimes an okay option if you are dealing with, for example, the H 1B cap, uh, because uh, you want to be working with the same case. Uh, But again, the Immigration Service is often taking a very long time to adjudicate motions to reopen or motions to reconsider. You're, of course, going back to the same uh, office of the agency that just issued you denial. You ought to think about that as uh, uh, disfavoring the motion to reopen or reconsider in many cases. Third, you have an administrative appeal that you can make to the Administrative Appeals Office. We have found that the Administrative Appeals Office, in certain kinds of cases, is willing to uh, be more favorable than a motion to reopen or a refiling of the case is. So if you had a strong case, particularly if it's a renewal, the immigration officer who saw it said there wasn't enough evidence that the position still qualified for the type of visa you wanted, that might be a kind of case you wanna take to the AAO. It's also an option if your company uh, is not interested in going full on to litigation. But an appeal to the AAO is not required, and it does take six to 12 months uh at a minimum to get a decision back from the AAO. So it's not a, a it's not a result that can go uh very quickly. So that really leaves us then with taking the agency decision into a federal court. So uh Ron, what are some of
2: the factors that would make you think litigation is the best option available? The first thing we we always look at is the record because whatever the the record is, the petition, the response to the RFE, anything that's already been filed is the record. And in most cases, you can't add anything to the record once you're in federal court. So we're going to look at the record and decide if it's good enough. Uh, If we're not happy with the record, well, that may be a reason we want to refile the petition and add some stuff. Or it may be a reason we'd want to do a motion to reopen to get more things in the record. For example. In H-1B specialty occupation cases a lot of times it's good to have one or two expert opinions it's our choice whether we want to have that in the record and they're going to be unrebutted because the immigration service is not going to have any expert opinion so yet another big advantage that we have when we go to federal court is we decide what's going to be in the record Um, another advantage is when you're dealing with the immigration service or with the including the AAO You're dealing with immigration service policy. You're dealing with their latest policy manual du jour. When you're in federal court, the judges don't care so much about immigration policy. They care about what the law is. What does the statute say? What does the regulation say? What do the precedent decisions say? So we want to show in federal court that there's been an error in, in the law irrespective of what the policy of the immigration service is. A lot of times the decisions, the denial decisions, are very, very poorly written. Uh, And it's not at all unusual that they contain mistakes not only of law, but mistakes of fact. Sometimes they even have wrong names of the people, of the parties. Uh, Those are great cases to take to federal court. Um, One of the reasons we usually don't prefer to do, for example, a motion to reopen is because when you do that, you're likely going to get a better more factually correct, more legally analyzed denial decision, which is harder to go to court with. Um, If you have situations where the company has filed 10 petitions for 10 people in the same exact position and nine of them have already been approved as specialty occupations and this one isn't, well, that's good. That's an inconsistency that you can point out to the court. Um, So we uh, may be a situation where we've had an approval and an extension, and now we're doing a second extension on the same facts and we're getting a denial. So anytime there's inconsistencies with prior adjudications, um, that those are good factors to see for uh, going into federal court. So on the next slide, um, I wanna talk a little bit very briefly about the, uh, the standards for challenging a denial in federal court. So uh, we're now talking about what's called a declaratory judgment under the APA. And the APA uh, requires a court to set aside, to reverse an agency denial uh, if it finds that the decision is uh, arbitrary, capricious, and abuse of discretion or not supported by substantial evidence. That's a lot of legal terms, but basically what it means is if you can show the court that you are right under the law and the government is wrong under the law, or if you can show the court that the the evidence of record does not support the position stated in the government's denial decision, or if you can show the court that the government's decision is inconsistent with other decisions that the government has made um, you are likely to have a strong case in federal court under the administrative procedure act
0: all right now uh, Dan will you talk uh, about who can bring one of these actions who is who is going to be the person who brings it the plaintiff so
1: as we said before in the, in the mandamus context if it's an employment based petition The employer is the petitioner and we very strongly prefer to always have the employer be a plaintiff the employee can be a plaintiff also but we would we would definitely prefer to have the employer be a plaintiff now there are some cases out there that say that the the beneficiary of an employment-based petition may have standing to sue on that petition Um, it varies and you know it varies by circuit and there is a Greater chance that the government will try to fight you on the issue of standing uh, if you don't have the employer as a plaintiff. Um, I guess I we probably ought to well I, this will blend right into the next slide. Um, so our goal, our goal in filing a lawsuit is, is not necessarily to get wonderful precedent decisions. Our goal is to resolve our clients' problems as quickly and as efficiently as possible. So That generally means that we are going to try to settle the case um, and the fewer opportunities we give the government to object for instance on on standing or venue um, the more likely it is that we're going to get through uh, and and get a settlement without having to fight or if we do have to fight the fight will be on narrow focused issues which will take less time Um, so about the time so the 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 steps the, the way the process works is we would well, first, we would review the record and discuss your options and whether it's best to file a motion to reopen, appeal, refile. But if we've decided that we're going to litigate, we would draft the complaint, we file the complaint with the court, we then serve the government with the complaint. The government then has 60 days to answer the complaint. During that 60 days, so that we, you know it takes them a little while to enter an appearance, but once the government attorney has entered an appearance, we'll reach out to that attorney and begin to talk about settlement. But we'll try, you know, we'll, we'll give them an overview of the case. We'll do everything we can to convince them that it's in their interest to convince their clients uh, to reverse the, the decision. Um, if that doesn't work, then the government will file their answer after 60 days. And then at some point thereafter, they will produce the administrative record. And then we will file cross motions for summary judgment, or sometimes they'll file a motion to dismiss. Generally, they're motions for summary judgment. So, you know, we get a motion for summary judgment, they get a cross motion, we get a, a response to their motion, and a reply to their response to ours. So, they're generally three sets of briefs that get written with the motions. There's typically no trial. Um, it's very rare that there's actually, you know, there's certainly no jury. These are all tried before a judge. Uh, it's very rare that there is an actual evidentiary hearing because. The court in these cases sits as an appellate tribunal reviewing the administrative record. Um, there are exceptions. We have been able to get discovery in limited cases. Uh, certainly, those kind of cases are where USCIS has approved something over and over and over again for years, and then suddenly is now denying it. Uh, we've been able to get discovery on uh, the pattern of practice and its retroactive change of policy. Um, but again, the, the cases almost always on based on the administrative record and usually subject to very limited or no discovery
0: now, what I'll do is move us on to some of the specific issues that we've been litigating quite a bit. I want to emphasize that some of these issues are pretty unusual to be litigated uh, before the last couple of years. So some of the case law is not terribly favorable because some of the cases that were getting challenged were uh, you know, very borderline. We've seen more and more strong cases getting denied, and so these are some of the cases that we are going into court on. H-1B, whether or not the job is a specialty occupation or not. H-1b whether there's an employer-employee relationship and L1a Multinationals and ma- managers and executives is the person managerial enough uh, So Dan, let's start with the uh, specific H-1b denials. What kinds of cases are we seeing there?
1: Um, I'm sure everybody who is involved in this industry has seen the crazy uh, H-1b issues um, You know RFEs and denials on uh, specialty occupations where You know for instance the employer's job is uh, Description allows for more than one possible degree. Uh, We're getting denials because the USCIS says well You don't require a specific degree if you if you allow for three or four different possible degrees Then you don't require a specific degree, but the law doesn't say you need one single degree the law says you need a specialty degree a degree in a specialty occupation So we've been litigating that issue um USCIS likes to cite the uh, Occupational Outlook Handbook to say that, you know, a, a degree is sometimes but not always, is usually but not always required and therefore a degree is not required for the position. Well, that doesn't, that, that doesn't uh, meet the regulatory definition, which is, you know, a degree in a specialty field is usually required. Um, we've been seeing those. Uh, we've been seeing some, but not so many, but some that, in, Um, third-party placement um, situations where the employee is is working for the employer but at a third-party job site. We've seen questions about whether or not that employer is really an employer of that employee or the employer of the third-party company. Um, The other issue we've seen is whether or not the employer has work available for the entire three-year H-1B period. Uh, if there's a work contract, if somebody's being placed somewhere, sometimes they come back and ask for evidence um, that there's enough work for this person for three years. And even though we give it to them, um, sometimes they deny anyway. So we've we've seen some of those issues and taken those to court.
0: I think too one of the things that we stress to the court and that we have to uh, be ready for is the question for the court is whether there was substantial evidence in the record to support. The agency's decision if there are contracts in place and there's there's the normal amount of evidence which has resulted in approval before uh, and the agency has denied it anyway what we're actually going to be talking about with the court is not uh, sort of second-guessing the agency's substantive decision but really did the agency ignore evidence Or fail to give enough credit to evidence or apply an incorrect burden of proof on the employer in terms of questions like is there enough work available if we're talking about a large company um, you know that that one presumes is going to stay in operation for the next few years so really these these questions of is there enough evidence in the record uh, are going to be really critical when we go to litigate
2: uh, these cases Um, Ron what about L1 kinds of cases so uh, we've had good success uh, with uh, uh, going into federal court on especially L1 manager cases. Uh, the, uh, the issue very often is whether the, whether the person qualifies as a manager. Uh, and uh, in, in order to qualify as a manager, you have to uh, – as, uh, I'm assuming we're a manager of people now. There's separate standards for functional manager and other types of managers. But in many of the cases, we're trying to show the person qualifies as a a manager of people. And in order to do that, you have to show that he's managing other managers or managing other professionals or managing other supervisors. Now, we've seen a number of decisions where the immigration service conveniently omits the last point. So it's true that the person is not managing other managers or managing other professionals, But if he's managing somebody who is supervising somebody else, that should be a successful case. And we have taken those kind of cases to court and been successful with them. Um, Another issue that comes up in the L1 litigation is, well, even if the person is a manager or even if the person is, uh, is an executive, A, is that person spending a majority of his time actually doing those managerial duties? And there, a record is very important, where hopefully the record is going to have exact percentages of times doing different things. Um, And the other related issue is whether there is, whether there are one or more other people at the company who are actually available to do the non-managerial work. If we're saying that our person is spending majority of his time doing the managerial stuff, do we have, you know, can we show, uh, that that makes sense in terms of the overall personnel of the company. So, uh, specialized knowledge litigation is a little bit more difficult just because it's it's a little bit less quantifiable uh, as to uh, who has specialized knowledge and who doesn't. But again, with a strong record, you can take those cases in the federal court. Now, up to now, we've been talking
0: about some uh, really individual case Uh, decisions an individual age petition that's delayed an individual green card that's denied Um, there are however also challenges that a person can make under the Administrative Procedures Act to broad policy changes uh, that the agency uh, is involved in And so one small example of this uh, uh, is the challenge that uh, Ron you were part of and that was uh, challenging the immigration services redefinition of what it was to be unlawfully present uh, if you were an F, an M, or a J. So, uh, very briefly, basically, um, up to now, since since 1996, in fact, uh, the rule has always been that an F and a J uh, student or scholar is admitted to the United States for duration of their status. Uh, And if the Immigration Service finds them to have violated their status, denies them reinstatement, for example, uh, that the person then begins to accumulate unlawful presence. And the uh, USCIS tried to change that rule just by issuing a memo. Uh, Ron, tell us a little bit about what happened when you brought that
2: legal challenge. Yeah. So so I was co-counsel in this litigation. <laughs> and um, the, uh, the good news, very briefly, is that we challenged that uh, the the ability of the Immigration Service after 21 years of having a consistent policy to just issue a memo saying we've totally reversed our policy. Uh, And we argued that it was necessary under the Administrative Procedure Act for the government to go through a formal proposed rulemaking process, which they did not do. Uh, We also argued that under the law, the section of the law that defines unlawful presence, uh, it talks about staying beyond a specific period of time authorized by the Attorney General uh, and with the F1s and J1s who are DS duration of status uh, they're not subject to a specific period of time they're subject to uh, staying in status and we argued originally I was general counsel of the immigration Service of the American Immigration Lawyers Association at the time we argued to Immigration Service General Counsel that uh, the the F's and the J's should never have unlawful presence until a specific period of time has lapsed uh, And with DS that doesn't occur uh, And that as I said lasted 21 years the the judge the federal court judge in North Carolina uh, Agreed with both of our arguments um, and because of the huge impact of this uh, and because if the government violated the law and violated the APA uh, it affects people all across the country. Uh, the judge, at our request, issued a nationwide preliminary injunction um, and indicated in there that uh, the plaintiffs will likely succeed on the merits. We're now um, more than six months in, and there's been no decision after the preliminary injunction, which is actually very good news because the longer it takes for a decision, the longer the preliminary injunction stays in place. Based on what the judge said in the decision, we think there's, uh, we're hopeful that there's a good chance that when she issues a final decision, uh, that the final decision will be in our favor. And at that point, it would be up to the government whether they'd want to appeal to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. But for now, and we hope for a long time, uh, the government is enjoined from enforcing that memo. And so this is a, an example of a government changing policy without changing
0: the regulations. Uh, that's one way you can stop things. There are also a number of challenges going on which involve changing regulations in a way which is inconsistent with the statute that Congress passed. Uh, for example, there's something called the public charge rule that would affect even employment-based immigrants by requiring them to uh, give a lot of financial information. Uh, that has been enjoined by a lawsuit of this type. So. Uh, We will certainly be suggesting to our clients that they uh, consider participating in some of these broader challenge lawsuits uh, as the uh, current administration tries to make uh, policy changes uh, that are inconsistent with the statute or the regulations. so with that, uh, that kind of wraps up the formal part of the presentation. I'm gonna invite people to use the question box or the chat box, uh, ideally the question box, but the chat box if you can't figure out the question box. Uh, I've got uh, the questions here, uh, and I can see them as you type them in, so uh, feel free to type in any questions that you have. Uh, I'll tee up the first question. Right now we have we have one question from, from Kate Tucker. She says uh, that, uh, Her understanding is that if you appeal uh, a denial, so for example, an an H-1B that's denied, uh, that was an extension, that going to court does not keep the foreign national in lawful
2: status just because you went to court, is is that right? Yeah, that that is correct, Uh, it's it's correct, period. However, um, it may be possible to request the court to issue a temporary restraining order and or a preliminary injunction to allow the status quo to to continue and and the person, the employee to be able to remain employed and also for the employee not to accrue unlawful presence because if the previous status expired and now it's 180 days later and the litigation's still going on, the employee is now subject to a three-year bar to returning to the U.S. So in order to keep the status quo, in that example, it may be possible to get the judge to issue a temporary restraining order to allow the status quo to continue and the person to remain employed while we're waiting for a decision.
0: So this is a great uh, way that we can strategize about how to get a decision quickly. You saw from some of the discussions that we had about denials and uh, kind of what to do in the meantime, uh, you might think of it as uh, sort of three opportunities to get a, a favorable decision on the denial. The first opportunity is when the U.S. Attorney gets your complaint and has to decide whether or not they're going to try and defend this denial. That has to happen typically within 60, possibly 90 days if you agree to an extension. Uh, and uh, then the next opportunity is exactly as positive here. If you have someone whose status expired, you may very well want to uh, go ahead and extend, file a temporary restraining order, file a preliminary injunction. The Immigration Service has to make a very quick, uh, sorry, the, the judge has to make a very quick decision on that preliminary injunction. If the judge denies the preliminary injunction request, it's often an indication that uh, the judge is not a great fan of the case. Uh, on the other hand, if the judge grants a preliminary injunction, it's often a good sign that perhaps the immigration service ought to just uh, uh, give up their game and go home. Uh, so those are, so, and and then of course, the third opportunity is, you know, sometimes six months, maybe down the line, you can get a decision from the judge in your favor. Um, now, another question just coming in from McKinney Childs. Um, you know, how about challenging EB1 types of denials where it seems to be a, a sort of uh, a much more subjective analysis on some of the factors, whether that's financial, uh, uh, I'm sorry, about the, maybe the, for example, the final merits uh, of a case. Um, what, do you, what do you say about that, Dan?
1: Um, you know, we, we're, I'm in the process of litigating several EB1A denials right now. Um, most of the time they don't get to the final, uh, final, final. Um, weighing the equities usually they deny on, on not meeting the criteria um, but even if they do the standard may be somewhat subjective but it is still a legal standard it's not up to USDA as a discretion to just make it up and decide you know who I feel like letting in today and who I feel like is extraordinary tomorrow um, there is a legal standard we can still challenge the decision um, in EB1A cases specifically I would want to go and look very closely at the record. Um, USCIS typically dismisses certain awards and, and certain uh, associations and, uh, you know, they often treat things as, as not having a lot of weight when normal people would, would give them considerably more weight.
0: Uh,
1: however, you know, we, we want to make sure that the record is as strong as possible. So before I jump into court on an EB1A case, which does have a, a more Amorphous standard than an H one B case, we want to make sure the record's really good. Um, but yeah, it certainly can be
0: done, and we've done it. Um, yeah, I think it, you know it is one of the things that we will discuss with the client in terms of whether to take a case to federal court or not. Uh, to really look into the details of that record. Um, remember that a federal judge will often want to defer to the agency's expertise and. The federal judge is not uh, sort of asking him or herself, would I have granted this case if I was the adjudicator? The, the federal judge is asking him or herself, is this decision within the zone of possible decisions? Is it strong enough that it should never have been denied by anybody? Uh, or, or is it sort of uh, on the border? So, uh, you know, I think yes, it is. Possible on any of these subjective types of things, uh, uh, you know, to to go ahead and um, go into court and to get successful results. But I think you do have to be aware that, you know, if, if, if it's a record that we look at and say, well, it could have been this, it could have been that, we might actually tell you that refiling is going to be a better option.
2: I would say, Bill, that when you're dealing with green card cases such as EB1As, the government is more likely. To fight the case than they are on on an H or an L where they're more likely to settle the case unless they really think they have a strong case um, I, as you know Bill the the largest uh, Equal Access to Justice Act fee award that we got was when we successfully litigated an EB1A case
0: that's right the government really did fight that case uh, and, and it was really there was overwhelming evidence of the person's status so uh, as, a, as a person at the head of their field. I would be very careful or remiss not to point out right now um, that challenging a national interest waiver, uh, an EB-2 that we use uh, uh, oftentimes if there's not quite enough evidence for a newer person whose evidence doesn't meet the EB-1A standard, that's going to be very difficult to challenge in federal court. The government there has an argument uh, which is hard for us to overcome, and that is that the Uh, Congress put into a different area of the statute uh, a rule which says that certain kinds of discretionary decisions uh, where the attorney general may grant a case um, are not necessarily subject to court review. So that's an extra level of challenge in a national interest waiver case. Um, You'd really have to be looking for a legal error that was made in the decision and oftentimes the best remedy that you're going to get in a case like that is that the judge is going to it back to the agency to say make a better decision not necessarily an approval because it was committed to that agency discretion uh, so we have one time for one last question if anybody does want to uh, put one out there and uh, in the meantime uh, I will give you a couple of final notes um, first off we want to thank everybody for attending today we hope that you found it useful and our contact information uh, is going to be up here on the screen Feel free to email questions after this seminar. We'll, we'll answer them individually. And we'll blast them out to all participants. A recording of this webinar is going to be available, and is going to be a link to it is going to be emailed to anybody who registered. Uh, and of course, we invite you to follow us on social media, to review our blogs, the articles, the news alerts that we send out. Um, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we'd be more than happy to have you uh, connect with us there and to share uh, your thoughts and, and our content as they're useful to you. So hopefully this has been uh, a good use of your time that you felt uh, that this is now an option that you're able to consider a little bit better uh, as you have uh, adverse decisions. We would welcome having a detailed discussion about any particular denial situation that you're facing or uh, any policy that you see is gonna adversely affect your business. Feel free to contact any one of the lawyers here, uh, any of the speakers, of course. Uh, We'd be more than happy to do that. So uh, with all that said, we thank you for joining.
1: And that concludes the webinar.